Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you'd like to support the ministries of Rancho Church as we advance the cause of Christ together, you may do so at rancho.tv giving. Enjoy. Welcome to Rancho United. I have to confess I have to be gathered a little bit. That um, last song was amazing. And uh, many on this team are, are going through a little bit of a, of a rough time uh, this week and, and ongoing. And uh, that kind of a, of, a, of a foundation, that God is good through it all, just means so, so much. So thanks to this team. Again, if you're at home, just applaud this team behind us. Uh, great, great men and women worshiping God with all their heart and in the good times and in the struggles. Thank you so much for being a part of Rancho. We are very excited to have you here. Whether you are here locally in the Temecula Marietta Valley or all over the world watching us, you are a part of this family of faith and we wanna connect with you in so many ways. You can comment anytime we have pastors online. Just let us know what you're going through, a prayer request. Uh, you can always text to this number right here, 951-379-3795. You can text guest if you're here for the first time. If you have a prayer request, if you want some more information, you wanna reach out to somebody, I need help. Just send anything you'd like to that text number and we will reach out to you and provide anything that you need. This particular series, Between Two Ears, has had a powerful impact on so many lives because we're going through a global crisis and, and some of us here are going through a little bit of a personal crisis as well uh, with just people that we love around us who are going through tough times. And, and in this series, we are being taught by God's word and with the wisdom of one another how to, how to capture thoughts that may be destructive and to retrain those in a way that is God-honoring and helpful. And uh, that's a little bit different. We do some interviews. Elaine is here partnering as well. Uh, we have music throughout this, uh, this uh, each week. And so it, it's kind of fun. It's kind of engaging. It's, it, it's a little different, but hang in because this is having a powerful impact on so many lives. Uh, I also want to encourage you to, uh, to give, to be generous during the season as well. Uh, there have been about 15% of our families that have had to pull back uh, or pull back entirely on their giving. So many of you have stepped up to help fill that gap. You can go to rancho.tv slash giving. You can give just one time or set up a regular uh, recurring uh, gift of generosity to keep our ministries going. We are going strong, just producing incredible content, creating online communities for every generation. And we're also helping to, to feed this valley and house this valley and partner with 51 other local and global agencies, humanitarian groups that we are partnering with locally and overseas. And we haven't had to pull back one bit. So thank you for your generosity on that. Also, we are a YouTube channel. So go to YouTube youtube.com slash Rancho United and subscribe there, like there, like it, share it, do whatever you'd like to do to get this word out about the ministry of Rancho that's bringing God's grace um, in this difficult time uh, to individuals and families all over the world. Well, this is week three of our Between Two Ears series. And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is between these two ears. Our relationship with God is in our minds. Our relationship with God is in our brain. And I know that might sound a little unusual in church talk. We tend to use very spiritual words like soul and spirit or spiritual. What we're really talking about is the brain. This God-given, magnificent, miraculous brain that gives us the ability to think outside of ourselves. Now, we can label that all kinds of things, soul, spirit, uh, spiritual, but really it's God, this God-given ability for us to connect with him 
and to connect with others in a way that feels metaphysical. But what's really happening is this beautiful, miraculous brain has been wired by God to operate very much in the image of God so we can have a real connection with him and a real connection to others person to person using our brains, which between our two ears. Now in the scripture, particularly the Old Testament, there is a word called lev. And this is a Hebrew word that means all of it. It's not the separate, separation of mind and heart and soul and spirit. It's just lev. It is us. Mind, heart, soul, character, inner being. All of this is kind of one thing in the Hebrew mind. And, and we know that that's true today. In fact, modern science is, is verifying this, that what we call emotion, what we might say is the heart, is not the organ pumping blood. It's actually the brain the more primitive part of our brain, but then there's the reason or the mind. It's still part of the brain. How we function, how we think, our conscience, our, who we are, uh, our consciousness, all of it is between our two ears, including our relationship with God. So our thoughts about God are between our two ears. Our spiritual, and I put that in quotes, connection with God is between our two ears. Our prayer life between our two ears, the thoughts that we think about God and toward God. Our relationship with God between our two ears. Now this might sound a little weird, but even our eternal life might be between our two ears. Now I know we might think, well, our soul lasts forever, spirit lasts forever, there's a lot of language there. But neuroscientists, many believe that the data in our brains, they're starting to kind of quantify how much data is in our brain. And they're starting to think that our data in our brain might be downloadable. Put that in quotes, downloadable. All these neurons and synapses, trillions of connections in our brain might have that data be downloaded. So is it possible? This is in the totally weird category. There's no verse about this. Is it possible that God might, you know, kind of quote, download the data in our brain, our consciousness, our memories, kind of who we are, that inner lev? Is it possible that that could be downloaded to an eternal state? I just think that's kind of fun. I love talking about the weird stuff. Now, in our brains, between our two ears, there are thoughts about God that are healthy and good and right, and there are thoughts about God that can be destructive. In fact, in Romans 121, it says this, that they, these are people who are ruining their lives with all kinds of terrible behaviors, hurting one another. Why were they hurting one another? Well, they began to think up foolish ideas about what God was like. It all is right here. When we start thinking up foolish ideas about God, our whole life can be ruined. Our behavior can be ruined. We can hurt people, right? We go into this darkness. As a result of these foolish ideas, their minds became dark and confused. Now, we also see the flip side of that in Hebrews chapter three, that there's a way to think carefully and to think right about God. Think carefully about Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. So there's a wrong way and a foolish way to think that creates destruction and darkness. There's a careful and a right way to think about God, and that's through the lens of Jesus. When we think about God, think about Jesus. He's the full expression of God, right? He is the, quote, word of God, John chapter 1. And so when we think about Jesus, that he's the full message of God, he's the high priest that brings us to God, that's how to think rightly about God. Now, all of this is called doctrine. Whether we think in a way that's harmful or we think in a way that is good, if we think in a way that's foolish or a way that's careful, all of that is called doctrine. Some doctrines are good and healthy. Some doctrines are dark and destructive. 
This is all doctrine. Now, you might look at the word doctrine and think, well, that's for the pointy-headed, you know, theo geeks, the way I'd like to call them. There's these theology geeks, and they love kind of getting in their, you know, libraries with their, their tweed jackets and debating all kinds of nuances about who is God and what does he want from us and little details about every word and syllable of, of Scripture. And that's fine. There's a place for that. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that in my, you know, upbringing. And, and um, now I kind of keep things a little simpler because this can go down some really dark holes here. But Anything we believe about God is called doctrine for better or for worse. So here's why this is so important. In, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, the apostle Paul is training this young man, this young man who's gonna be a leader, and this is what he says. Watch your life and doctrine closely. And that word watch means to guard, to tightly guard your life, tightly guard your doctrine. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, when we think of salvation, sometimes in our Western kind of evangelical mind, we think about heaven and hell. Don't think about heaven and hell when you think about salvation. It is much deeper, much richer than that. And so what the apostle Paul is saying to this young leader is if you guard your life and guard your doctrine, you will save yourself. Now, we know we don't atone for our own sins or forgive, uh, forgive ourselves or bring ourselves to God. But what salvation is biblically is this deep and rich journey from darkness to light from foolish things to careful things. So it's this journey of salvation, this journey of aligning our lives, our heads, our families, our community, our world, aligning that with the kingdom of heaven, going from selfishness to selflessness, going from hate to love, going from judgment to acceptance. That's the salvation journey. And how does that salvation journey happen? When we guard our life and our doctrine, it is so important. Why? And I believe this with all my heart. What we believe about God, what we believe about God shapes everything. What we believe about God shapes what we value, shapes our worldview. It shapes the sanctity of life. It shapes what love is, what really matters, the nature of every relationship and the very meaning and purpose of our existence. All of that is shaped by what we believe about God. So if we believe more foolish things about God, our life is going to just descend into darkness and chaos. But if we believe in the right and careful things about God through the lens of Jesus, then our life becomes more aligned with the kingdom of heaven and it becomes a more peaceful and full and meaningful life. That's why Proverbs 23, seven says this, for as he thinks within his heart, so he is. What we think between our two ears is who we are. So what we think about God is so very important. So here's the question, and you can comment on this uh, on the chat, is, is can we really control what we believe about God? And if so, how? How can we control what we believe about God? If what we believe about God, these doctrines, this belief, if it is so important to the very course of our lives, can we change what we believe? And if so, how? Now here's the reality about what we believe about God. Most of what we believe about God is rooted in our upbringing. Now, people don't like this a lot, but it really is empirically true. Most of what we believe about God comes from our upbringing. Now, uh, very often people will ask themselves, well, gosh, if I was born in a, in a Muslim family, would I be a Muslim? The answer is probably yes, probably yes where we're born, to what family we're born into, what culture we're born into, all of that comes with a certain religious background, right? A, a certain sort of generational and cultural knowledge about God, some of it foolish, some of it good. But where we're born sort of sets the course of our doctrine. It sets the course of our belief at home. 
Now, when we get a little bit older, perhaps we're part of a faith community. And so perhaps when we're kids, we're dropped off at children's church. Or perhaps in youth group, we, are, we go to youth group. These are wonderful environments for the most part. They're fantastic environments where kids feel a sense of love and acceptance and community. And hopefully, at least a good chunk of that time, they're taught things that are good and careful and right and true and helpful. But very often that's not the case. Very often what kids hear in Sunday school is that God wants you to be a good little boy and girl. And all kinds of Sunday school curriculum, God wants you to be a good boy and girl. And if you're a good boy and girl, God's gonna bless your life. Well, that's moralism, that is terrible, right? It's, it's good to teach children to do good things. But why do good things? Is it because God is kind of brooding over you or will judge you if you don't do the right things? There's that little hint there. I mean, I have, I have been a part of, not leading, thankfully, but been a part of and seen children's ministries where literally threats are used to get kids to believe the right things, quote unquote, or to do the right things. That is harmful. This is true in youth group as well. So many times in youth group, here are kids in their formative ages, uh, and I had this experience as well, the brain is just absolutely plastic. In other words, it is being shaped. It is being molded during those formative years. And here you are in youth group, you're kind of pulling away from your parents a little bit and you're relying on your youth pastor and youth workers. Most of them were kind of raised in youth group with sort of this moralistic thing. And now you bring threats. You bring a threat of, of being separated from God. You, be, you bring a threat of God will kind of judge you for your sin. If you do this, God's gonna make your life kind of a mess. Uh, if you do the right things, God will bless your life. All of these things, it's a whole religious system that is very, very destructive. And that is setting into our brains during those formative years. It is so difficult to change our, our doctrine, our beliefs, from our formative years because our brain kind of gets a little more set in once we get into our 20s and what we were taught when we were young just sets. And so uh, every week I had this experience. Some, somebody very intelligent, brilliant, captain of industry, they, they will talk to me about something that was challenged in their belief system and they will go back to the theology of their youth group every single time and they will be so offended if anything challenges the theology of their youth group. They will not be open to change their mind. Now, I went through this myself. I had a radical, what I call grace awakening, a radical grace awakening in my mid-20s and it was so painful for me because I had to release some things and change some things that I was taught in very, uh, as, a, as a very young boy and into my uh, youth group. And, and, and it's painful, it hurts, and it take, at least for me, it took, took years. Now it's okay certainly to pass on the good things to our kids. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter six, we see God saying, hey, listen, impress my word onto your children. Talk about it when you sit at home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. So it's okay to impart these things into our kids, but be careful what we're imparting into our kids. Because if we're imparting this idea that God is a, this, this brooding force that is really about sort of controlling behavior and that God's highest value is to control our behavior or to make us good boys and girls, our brains are not wired correctly in terms of our relationship with God. We're thinking more foolish things instead of more careful things. This changing of the mind is what the Bible calls spiritual warfare. Now, some of you might be a little challenged by this, just hang in. 
Some of this might challenge the theology of your youth group. Hang in, especially if you're a child of the 80s or 90s. Uh, So hang in there. Spiritual warfare is about changing our minds. Now, when we think about spiritual warfare, we might think about, you know, the devil being after us. And we might think of, you know, him unleashing demons on us to tempt us or to discourage us or something like that. And so, you know, God has to sort of dispatch the angels and there's swords and there's all kinds of incredible books written about spiritual warfare, again, in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, and that kind of sets in our, in our heads what, what this dynamic with God is all about, these spiritual forces around us. But listen to what the Bible has to say about spiritual warfare. The Bible talks about spiritual warfare as the things in our mind that have to change about God. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. It's spiritual. It's unseen, right? But divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. Something has to be destroyed. What has to be destroyed? We are destroying arguments. We're destroying arguments and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And so these are things that are untrue about God. Those have to be destroyed. Those have to be torn down, right? And it's so difficult to do that. Um, And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's about what happens between two ears. That's spiritual warfare. Changing from the old destructive ways of thinking and changing those into the new and healthy and careful ways of thinking. That is so difficult, especially if we are changing from our, the theology and the doctrine of our formative years. Here's the truth. What we believe has immense power over us, but we also have immense power over what we believe. It's hard, but we can do it. We can do it. By God's help, by God's grace, the truth of God's word, the help of one another, we can change from destructive thoughts to write and careful thoughts about God. So what are some harmful thoughts about God? Here's just a few. There's a long list. I wish I had an hour to talk about every one of these, but I don't and you don't. And so we'll go quick. Here are some destructive thoughts. Why did God do this? Let's say a a child is born with a a birth defect or, or some kind of a challenge. Why did God do this? It's a very destructive way of thinking. When a natural disaster hits, whether it's an earthquake or a tsunami or a pandemic, these are the things that have happened in our own you know, in our own lifetimes, uh, or even things like a terrorist attack. Why did God do this or why did God allow that? That's a destructive way of thinking. God did not unleash this pandemic. God did not unleash an earthquake or a tsunami to judge people. God did not unleash terrorist attack to teach us a a lesson. God doesn't operate like that. This world is broken and, and a broken world has broken things, including people making terrible choices to perform a a terrorist act, or the planet is broken and and people live in areas where there are fault zones and potentials for tsunamis. And the reason why this pandemic has taken place is because a virus transmitted from an animal to a human and spread from there. That's why it happens. It's not God doing this. It's a destructive way of thinking. God is punishing me for my failures. That is a destructive way of thinking. God demands my faith without question. If I doubt that I'm somehow offending God and he won't answer my prayers, very, very destructive. Um, God will answer my prayers and heal people with enough faith. That's another kind of lie that's out there. God demands faith without question. God will only heal if, uh, if we have enough faith. Uh, God will bless my life if I'm faithful to him. These are all the things that are destructive, right? And they create sort of this 
transactional relationship with God, that God will only perform good things for us if we perform good things for him. It's a very distorted and twisted way of thinking. Here's another distorted way of thinking. And again, just walk with me here. This is gonna sound a, a little bit off to you, but hang in. That Jesus died a torturous death on the cross because God demands a torturous death to be paid for my sin. This is kind of common in the evangelical world. But I want us to look at that. A lot of us believe, and we've been taught from the youngest ages, we're a sinner and we have offended God and his wrath is upon us. His wrath is so fierce, he demands blood. He demands sort of this torture uh, to pay, quote, for our sin. And so what God does is he, he, he sends his son to receive the torturous death that we deserve. Now, what does that do to our brains? It's destructive that God is this vengeful, awful, fierce creature that demands blood. And, and, and here's Jesus being sort of that, that actual, you know, sacrifice, blood sacrifice to satisfy a bloodthirsty God. I mean, it sets our brains in a wrong way. Now imagine the prayer life that comes as a result of that. When we pray, it's all about just sin and God's vengeance and wrath. And, and, and our prayer is, God, you know, I know you're holy and I know you're perfect and I am such a sinner and I'm unworthy to even be here. And I sinned, you know, earlier this morning and I'm unworthy and I'm separated from you and I'm gonna confess my sin and I gotta confess it all because if I don't confess it all, I may not be forgiven. And then I've gotta repent. I've gotta commit to do better and better and better. And if I do better than God, I might feel as though you're close to me and I might feel as though you're gonna bless me and answer my prayers and I might feel as though I'm going to heaven. These are the, the terribly destructive things that oftentimes we raise our kids and youth in and that carries with them for the rest of their lives. It's almost as though God is a, is, a, is a police officer and you know the feeling, you're driving down the road, well, some of you know the feeling, I definitely know the feeling of driving down the road and might be going a little too fast. I may have made a left-hand turn I wasn't supposed to many, 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 many years ago. And you see this, this in your rear view mirror, police officers and sirens, right? And the lights are on and what is that feeling? Guilt. I'm busted and there's gonna be punishment, right? There's this officer with a badge and he's gonna write you a ticket and there's gonna be a fine and worse than anything on earth, traffic school. It's like, no. Many of us feel as though God is this cop car lighting us up. In fact, a Baylor University study said this. In America, 32% of us believe God's authoritarian, like this officer lighting you up. 16% believe God is critical. He's nitpicking us. 24% believe God is distant, that something in us causes him to be separate from us. This means that 72% of us here in America, which is mostly a, a Christian nation, at least coming from a Christian background, believe wrong things about God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We all need this rest. 72% of us are trapped in wrong thinking about God. Jesus offers us rest. So what are the right things to believe about God? What are these more helpful things and true things about God? Well, first of all, God doesn't do all these destructive things. Um, things happen as a broken world and broken things happen in a broken world. And, and there's no way to connect, you know, how this thing happened to that good person or this thing happened to that bad person, tragedies around us. We can't connect that because God is not actively doing it. God is wanting to save us from a broken world by love. 
God does not punish us for our sin. I can't be more clear about this or say this enough. Read 1 John 4, 18. If you believe God punishes you for your sin, you don't know his perfect love. It, it is that clear. God doesn't punish for sin. Now, there are consequences when we make mistakes. If we do something to hurt somebody, there's a consequence there. We do something dumb and wrong, there's a consequence to that. But it's not God punishing. God does not condemn our disobedience. There's this whole theology about God condemning now and forever. John 3, 17 and 18 says we are condemned by our own failures. We live in a system of condemnation that God is wanting to rescue us from by his love. God does not demand doubtless faith and sold out devotion. He's a heavenly father who walks with us on a journey of a better life and increased faith and to live a life that honors him and honors others. But he's a loving, patient, forgiving father who walks with us on this journey and it's an imperfect journey. Now, God does not heal or bless because of our faith or devotion. Sometimes you know, I'm praying with faith and I'm praying for healing and it doesn't happen. Well, we must have failed. We might have doubted or we weren't strong enough in our faith. All of that is just destructive thinking. Um, God moves forward his peace. He moves forward his care into all the earth. And he's not giving out good things, you know, when we when we appease him and when we make him smile upon us and, oh, you've earned the right, let me do some good thing for you. And in terms of the gospel, the work of Jesus, this is critical. Jesus died not to satisfy a bloodthirsty God. Jesus died because he was so committed to confronting political and religious oppressors, it cost him his life. He moved right into the world of the oppressors and it cost him his life. That's the price he paid to set the world free from wrong thinking about God. And he rose from the dead to show that love is the greatest power of all. Now imagine that kind of prayer life. That kind of prayer life is alive and well. In fact, there's a wonderful prayer in the Bible that is around this whole concept. Now listen to this. This is the joy and the pleasure of believing the right things about God. I kneel before the Father, Paul says. I pray that you being rooted and established in love. It is the Father who loves us. This is setting our, our hearts right on God. He's a loving and good Father. 72% do not believe he's a benevolent Father. They believe he's a judge and a condemner. But this is a prayer that understands God is loving, that we would have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love. There it is, know this love deep within our heads, between these two ears. And that love surpasses common knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That's exciting. That's a good way of thinking. It's healthy, it's vibrant, it is alive, but... Only 23% of Americans believe that God is benevolent. Some people ask me, you know, Scott, why are you so just, just set on this subject about correcting the way people think about God? Because 2000 years ago, Jesus came to set us free to believe God is a benevolent, loving, heavenly father and to free us from this idea that he's this authoritarian, critical, distant being ready to pounce on us. After 2,000 years of the ministry of Jesus, only 23% believe that God is benevolent. Only 23% live and think according to this basic truth that God is love. I'll close with this and we'll have a song and bring up Elaine. Uh, I am doing a construction project at my house. It's some remodeling and we just got done with the concrete. Thankfully, we got done with the concrete. So there's some, uh, some rebar that has to go down. This is half inch rebar. This is kind of how we think about God. It is rigid. By the time we're in our 20s, it is almost set, right? And, and you might think, Scott, we know you're powerful enough to bend this rebar. Well, a little bit. 
it's hard to change the way we think. But God has given us tools. Here's a rebar bender. God has given us tools. And those tools are his word, our relationship with each other, even help of mentors and therapists who love the Lord and are able to say, you know what? This can change. You can shape the way you think about God. It's hard, but it can happen. The band is gonna sing a song called Greater. And this song, Greater, just settles on the power of God the Father bringing peace into our life. Just enjoy this song, sing along if you want, and let the truth of this song really resonate in your life.
God is our father. God is our peace. These are the truths that really can sink into our lives and make a difference in every relationship uh, that we have. And we're going to be helped throughout this whole series, again, by Elaine Romero. She's been a Christian therapist for 25 years. She's part of our preaching team and leadership team. So welcome, Miss Elaine Romero. Come Welcome back. Thank it you is for having me. It's so to good here. to have you here every week. I'm so week. impressed by our worship team and all Oh, they they're do. amazing people for sure. And uh, so we're here to help people navigate God's word and navigate just some of the tools that we know about now based on modern science and therapy and psychiatry and, uh, and really see that what God has been saying all along is actually verified in the sciences, which is pretty fun, which includes how we think about God as well. And right. so we'll talk about that here uh, for the, the minutes we have. And uh, so tell us in your experience, uh, and you've got vast experience dealing with people who come from a Christian and religious background, how thoughts about God can impact their lives and, and really how they think and behave, especially during a crisis. Right. You know, I, it's funny. I oftentimes will have people when they find out you're a therapist and, and a lot of my colleagues get that too, where people will say, how do you do that? How do you listen to people's problems all day? And it really isn't like that. And I'm sure you feel that way too. It's actually more this, this just a kind of honor and privilege when people, you know, feel safe enough to share with you difficult things that are going on in their life, especially when they're going through um, like a, a difficult tragedy. And part of what's so exciting is to sit through the process with someone and see the way that they're able to cling to God for hope, for foundation, and how time after time I get to see and witness how God restores people. Even I went through that in my own life, and you walked through that with me in that. So it's just an exciting process, but in that process, it doesn't always look pretty, and there's ugly moments, and it doesn't always just tie up, you know, in this nice, neat bow. There's a lot of um, hard times in that challenge of being restored, so I, a lot of times, it's funny that you're talking about you know, remodeling your home, because I will use that often as an analogy with my clients to say, Going through a a crisis or a tragedy or a challenge is often like that remodel. So there's something broken, right, Right. in your home. And you ask God, can you come in? Can you fix this? And he says, yep, he's the contractor, right? Yep, yep, I can fix this. But as he comes in with his crew, suddenly he's knocking down all sorts of walls. He's bringing it down to the foundation. And you're like, wait, I I didn't (laughs) want you to ruin all of that. I like that wall. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a scary process. And sometimes you doubt God. And sometimes you wonder, why is this taking so long, right? Um, But if we trust in God in that process, a lot of times, just like in a home remodel, as it's rebuilt, you see the beauty in it and you see how, gosh, this is even a better design or it's more functional. Now, you will still grieve, Right? You'll still grieve the old design sometimes, um, but if we can rest in that new design that, that God will bring about it, that we have to remember that after every devastation, God will always rebuild. And that's something that we lean on. And I see clients do that day well, in and day This is out. what Second Corinthians had mentioned, that there are things that need to be demolished, right? What, what it calls spiritual warfare. It is, it is a battle. It, it sometimes hurts. It's painful that these right. are things that I have sort of thought my whole life or these experiences that I've had shaped me into this person. And now you're asking my thoughts to change and you're asking me to kind of grow in areas that are uncomfortable. But um, crisis times and trauma can 
can really see God do powerful work in that remodel to destroy the things that need to be destroyed so that a whole new, better way of thinking can emerge. Right. And, and, and what is that better way of thinking? And, and it's yeah. one of those things where when, when a crisis happens, you don't want that and we don't wish that on right. anyone. But when it happens, there, over time, you see the beauty in it of you have to basically fall to your knees and become completely dependent on the Lord. And that actually in of it itself is a very beautiful thing. Now, sadly, sometimes I will see, and I'm sure you do in your pastoral counseling too, that sometimes people will start to have these difficult distortions about God in the process, that they're asking things like, why has God abandoned me? Or why did he let this happen? Or, you know, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's punishing me. Or maybe Satan is out to get me. And sometimes people spiritualize a situation that they start to kind of feel like maybe this tragedy happened because I wasn't spiritual enough. I wasn't Christian enough. I, I made a mistake in the I past. I made a mistake in the right. past and this is my punishment. Or, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you and I often sitting in the seat as the therapist or the pastor, it's very sad to see that because a lot of times we'll realize it's really probably more the result of just either human choices or error, or sometimes it has to do with someone's genetic makeup. Sometimes it has to do with the chemical right. components in maybe their brain, or sometimes even it's just a horrible accident, yeah. you know? And so that's what's really sad. But the goal is, is we want to remember and help people to keep leaning in on God during these times and to trust in the way that he will rebuild. Um, I wanted to share one of my favorite verses that I know I really found that I clung to in a devastating time, Psalms 56, 8. It says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. I didn't know you had a bottle, right? <laughs> uh, you've recorded each one in a book. And I remember that spoke so much to me to feel like in those moments where I was just in pain and crying that God cared so intimately, he was tracking and recording all of those. And that helped me to kind of feel like God was right there with me in that pain. Well, and that's you walking through your own process. And all of us have gone through times of crisis and it is, a, it is a struggle because you, you can think, where is God? Is he distant from me? Did he cause us? Am I being punished? And, and those are the times where we need God's closeness the most, right? Right. We need, him, we need to know he's right here and he cares and he weeps with us the way Jesus wept with others. Uh, that God is, is truly, because we're made, made in his image, feeling what we're feeling and walking us through that. And yet sometimes these, these wrong ways of thinking give us the impression between our two ears that God is out there or mad at us when really he's, he, he needs to be felt and wants to be felt as closely as ever. Right, and that's the time we need him the most. Exactly. And yet we're, you know, yep. sometimes we, we, we flee thinking yeah. that maybe he's not there. Yeah. So let's talk about the power of prayer in this. We mentioned a couple of prayers in, in the Bible, in particular this one prayer in Ephesians, longest prayer in, in the New Testament letters where Paul's just loving who God is and enjoying his love and just relishing in his, in his love. And this is the Apostle Paul who's gone through rejection and beating and imprisonments and facing death all day, every day, yet he's experiencing and loving the presence of God and the love of God in his life. What's the value of prayer and meditation in our own lives? Right, so prayer. Prayer is to me so amazing on many levels mm -hmm. because not only is it this direct way that I can speak to my maker, mm -hmm. you know, and it gives me this connection with him. Think of all that, you know, that allows us to do. When we get centered with prayer, 
it allows us to kind of talk things out yeah. and we know that that is helpful. It helps us sort out what's in my control and what I have to submit to God into his control. But what's great about prayer is that it also, there's some exciting things that actually happen to the body and to the brain when we pray. So when we get into that centered, calm state, it slows us down. It slows down the pace of our breathing and our thinking. It is. It's essentially a form of meditation. But studies actually show that it lowers um, the levels of the stress hormone called cortisol in our bodies. It lowers our blood pressure. It improves our immune functioning, right? Wow. So it improves yeah. our immunity. Um, there was a study done by Centra State Hospital there in New Jersey. And they said not only does prayer reduce stress and anxiety, it promotes this more positive outlook on life. And it actually, they found it strengthened the will to live. Um, I mean, which yeah. is huge, especially when we're knowing people are in a, in a tough, depressed place. So not only does prayer connect us with our God, it actually improves both our physical and our emotional health. Um, now, you had told me about a neuroscientist, Andrew Newberg. He um, wrote some interesting books and has done some studies. He actually studied brain scans of people okay. when they were praying. I don't know even how they do that. <laughs> but they found that the brain would light up in these different areas when they were actually praying and that it improved their ability to handle challenges and like difficult things in, in their life. So that that is super yeah. exciting to know that it, it goes back to that plasticity of the brain, that the brain can be reshaped and remodeled. Um, now, we also know that even in studies on couples, couples that pray together report feeling more connected um, because it's this very intimate sure. you know, uh, act. And as a result, then their mar marital satisfaction goes up. So praying together actually increases your marital satisfaction. So we were joking about, you know, couples that pray together stay, <laughs> stay together, together right? right? You know, there's that, that old yeah. saying. So not only is there a wealth of studies that show how great prayer is, there's also a wealth of um, verses about prayer or even times we see people praying, even Christ himself um, took that time to pray to the Lord. And so, you know, God kind of said it first, you know, prayer has healing properties. Right. Yep. And I just love that. Well, it, it does, and this is the fun thing about, you know, living in the 21st century. We have all this brain science, and we have all of these disciplines that show us things that God has Already shared yeah, yeah. 2,000, 3,000 like, years ago. finally, you get <laughs> That's right. Now, uh, we've got two minutes here. Uh, meditation is a form of prayer, but there's also um, a lot of studies about um, the benefits of this highly focused time. Right. So meditation is anytime you are, you're getting very focused and going inward and centered. And we can meditate through prayer. We can meditate through reading scripture and, and you know, seeing how God speaks to us through scripture. But there's also a buzzword kind of going around a lot called mindfulness. Mindfulness is interesting. It's, it's that form of meditation where I become aware or mindful of the emotion I'm having, but not just the emotion I'm having, but how I feel it in my body. So, um, Maybe that I'm saying, I feel fear in my chest, it's tightening up, 
uh, between one and five, it's a level five, you know yeah. what I mean? Like you, can, you, you start to really be aware. So um, there's methods like dialectical behavioral therapy where we encourage mindfulness because mindfulness allows you to regulate your body when you're dysregulated. So dysregulation is any time that I feel out of control. So like panic attacks right. or anger outbursts or things like that. So with mindfulness, I can take myself from what's called the uh, sympathetic system, which is that fight, flight, or freeze part, and bring it down to the parasympathetic system, which is calmer, and we can get to that rational part of the brain where we're thinking about things more logically. So meditation is hugely important in uh, just our, our physical health as well as our and mental And in health. the scripture, particularly in the Psalms, it talks about meditating, one Psalm in particular, meditating on the love of God. And one yes. study I just read this last week says that 12 minutes of meditation a day has all the impacts that you mentioned in terms of the immune system and happiness in life and general health and even longevity of life can be impacted right. by these things that God has been telling us all along to do. Mm -hmm. Elaine, thank you very much. You're, You're a great welcome. pleasure to have here. We'll look forward to seeing you right. next week. Thanks thank so you. Much. It means a lot. All right. Well, we are done for this week. We encourage you to be back next week as we continue our Between Two Ears series. And we also want to encourage you YouTube, subscribe, like, share, youtube.com slash Rancho United. God bless. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday.